This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Clarice, Her Journey Through Life, and the author is Harriet Maxwell, and Harriet joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Harriet. Oh, hello, Steve. Thank you so much for talking to me. Well, great to be talking to you in London, England. Uh, It's the magic of technology that sounds like you're right in the studio, and we're just having this great talk about your book, Clarice. Let me... uh, Tell everyone, uh, in general, what your book's about. Clarice is a fun-loving country girl with a secret from her childhood that she won't even tell her best friend. Great love and good luck sprinkled with sadness come her way through life. How would you deal with it all if you were her? Well, on the surface, it is a light-hearted story of a woman from 16 years to 45 years that has hidden serious topics. One is bulimia. The second is our reaction to disability. And the third is the emotional and physical cost of soldiers injured in recent wars. So all of those are very serious subjects. And you decided to write this story about Clarice Why. Harriet, why did you choose this theme? Well, um, as you said, the three things that run through it are very important issues, but I wanted to present them in a a reasonably nice-hearted and easy-to-read way where everyone could wouldn't have to go into some difficult scientific or very literary work, be able to read it as a light-hearted novel, but um, realize that there were many... underlying serious topics, which would open their eyes um, to realize that maybe they or their friends, um, everyone is sort of worrying about these sort of things, but very few people talk about them. And this was uh, Clarice's secret, mainly her difficulty with food and the fact she couldn't control uh, her eating. And of course, with celebrity being so important these days, um, girls of her age and older want to look extremely slim, um, and that was another sort of minor issue. You say that Clarice is the product of a dysfunctional family. Tell us about her family. Well, her family is probably hardly more dis- dysfunctional than lots of families um, we know about and have been, but. Her father was alcoholic, um, and he used to go down to the pub every night and come home um, more or less drunk. Often the children would tiptoe around him and be very careful not to wake him up or annoy him. And then he also occasionally um, physically abused his wife. So the children um, became very much a secondary issue, and... um, Of course, alcoholism is an addiction, and um, so is bulimia, a similar addiction, um, addiction to food and ways of getting rid of it. 
Dad is a heavy drinker. He physically abuses his mother. Uh, obviously, that has profound impact on all the children. What causes the bulimia? Is it uh, kind of a link between the way things are going at home and she's so frustrated and depressed and also the, I guess, the media's push for this thinness, as you talked about, you know, everyone's got to look just a certain way? Uh, yes, well, um, Clarice was quite <clears throat> quite happy when she was at home um, being fat and jolly because she lived in the country area where people weren't so particular. Uh, when she went uh, to London, near to London, to see the bright lights and see more of life, uh, she'd probably seen on the television, she um, started to work for uh, a rather thin, slim, smart woman. Um, and and decided she wanted to, you know, um, although she loved food, Clarice, she wanted to also continue to eat, um, but also be very thin. And it's very hard to eat an enormous amount of rich food and be also very thin. Uh, so um, this pushed her into her bulimic um, situation. Um, I think the link here is that her father couldn't control something, which was his alcohol intake, and basically Clarice couldn't control something, and that was her food intake. So she had to find ways, abnormal ways of doing it. It's always great to have friends. Friends pull us through some very tough situations, very uh, tough parts of our lives, and Clarice has a very special friend. Yes. Yes, she has a she has a very special friend um, called Joe, who who belongs to um, a Christian a Christian um, church, just an ordinary uh, sort of evangelical Christian church, and she gives Clarice support all through her life, um, despite uh, Joe not always agreeing with what how Clarice gets through things. Uh, she's there for her whenever things go seriously wrong. And I, as I, I agree with you, we all need at least one good friend in life. Um, and sometimes we need a spiritual um, thing to turn to, which uh, carried Clarice car through to some extent. Now, tell us about Terry. Ah, Terry was uh, the first love of her life. Um, she's a regular guy, um, normal bit of smoking, drank a drop of beer, uh, really adored Clarice. And when he realized that she needed um, bucking up at one stage, he uh, put her in for a talent contest uh, where she would be made over, uh, made to be, look really beautiful and walk the catwalk. Um, and he just idolized her and didn't notice um, anything really um, anything wrong with her at all, even when she slightly went, she strayed off the path, and straight and narrow. So, um, you know, when, when things, they had a child, and everything was so happy. Um, I won't want to say beyond that, because it kind of gives the whole plot away. And Terry, is he one of our soldier heroes in the book? No, no, he just, he started off as a cabinet maker, carpenter, and then he went to work um, on a big, on big building sites with his mate. 
Um, so this was her first marriage. And how do you weave in this, uh, the war wounds of warfare, the disabilities that come to our great soldiers? How do you weave that theme into this book? Well, much later on, after many other occurrences, um, Clarice found herself without a love in her life. Um, and so she looked on, went on the internet and started internet dating. And after a few fairly calamitous um, dates, she saw this gorgeous-looking soldier who she fell in love with. But at first, for a long time, she couldn't actually um, contact him physically because he was away um, supposedly doing extra work. But in fact, he was um, going to uh, a rehabilitation center to help him recover from his war wounds. Well, that's a big issue with you, isn't it? The, uh, yeah. tra the traumatic effects of those who come home from war who are injured so severely. Surely. Surely. Not only injured physically, but also men men mentally, mentally disturbed. Very many soldiers um, suffer from post-traumatic shock disorder, stress disorder. Uh, and this often comes on very, very much later. Uh, because to live through all that terrible t turmoil of war with, with the sounds and the, and the smells and the, the whole almost excitement of war, but it's terrible. And when they come home um, to a settled family life, um, that still carries on going around their head. And it's very difficult for them to live with and also very difficult for their wives and families to live with. I'm not sure there's enough. There are ther therapies designed to treat it, because so many soldiers are affected. Um, it often, I don't, I don't think it often really gets as much um, treatment as it should. More stress is put on the physical um, damage from war, which is terrible enough, uh, but the mental trauma from war can actually go on for the rest of a lifetime. Now, you have suggested some different therapies in this story. Yeah. You're, you're a, uh, are you a practicing doctor now? Um, no, I retired about um, a year ago. Uh, but during, that, during my time as a doctor, I trained as a hypnotist. And um, so I used to um, do hypnotherapy and learnt uh, treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, treated um, a couple of soldiers. Um, there are other treatments too. There's the tapping treatment, which is um, uh, available, where you, you tap um, points, energy points on the body, um, to help gradually disperse these dreadful, deep-seated memories. Um, because the memories are linked um, to every sense, every sense we have, to the smell, to the sight, to the sound, to the feeling, even to the taste, um, the taste of war, the taste of the, of, um, the war. So uh, each, each particular modality has to be dealt with and dispelled. And then the, the soldiers who are treated, they don't forget the memories. But the memories become less intrusive, less frightening. Um, the nightmares die down, and um, they gradually become um, you know, much more normal. But, it, but it's very much an untold story, actually, I think. Yes, and needs to be 
addressed uh, at the highest priority. I'm sure you believe that. I believe that uh, these great men and women who go off to war, we need to take care of them. Um, they're they're often I neglected. Couldn't, I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more. I think not nearly enough done. Um, you know, old men start wars, young men fight them, and who picks up the pieces of the young men that come back mm. severely damaged? Um, recently, there's been a, a good program on our television in the UK where a man's been teaching choirs of military wives to sing, um, and they've been singing at remembrance services and singing at the Albert Hall, and um, now they have also a stand, so that, because in the past, um, the wives of these soldiers and their families, their children, haven't really um, been counted for anything. And they've had to just pick up the pieces. And, and I would imagine quite a few of those marriages and things end in divorce uh, because the wives don't know how to handle the, the psychological damage. Well, in many ways, Clarice, as you write, is a Pollyanna, usually playing down her misfortunes and always looking on the bright side. But, of course, great challenges come to Clarice, and we'll kind of uh, won't tell all that uh, she goes through. Uh, but she is a person who understands that often you need to get help, right, and, and that uh, yeah. you can... You can get through just about anything if you get the right help. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, people need to have counsellors, therapists, and other and friends to listen. Uh, they need to be able to depend depend on these people and be able to tell their innermost fears and stories. And if they want need spiritual help as well, that's fine. Any sort of, um, you know. Uh, spiritual help um, outside of the, the, the normal churches, anything that's available, and they need to be able to know that people can understand their problems and feel for them. I think, um, um, what's the word? <laughs> I can't think. Um, understanding, empathy, um, and financial support in the case of a lot of the soldiers who come back and can't get jobs. Um, and haven't got very good benefits. And also feeling for their children, their little children, who've seen their daddies sitting well, marching off to war, and coming back as broken men. And um, it did, I did mention in my book at one stage um, that really they see all the glory of people marching out, but they don't really see the terrible things that come back. And we, we've seen in England a lot of coffins. We have coffins um, escorted through our towns up to the military bases regularly, weekly, of young men. And they leave behind children who are really also quite psychologically damaged. So it is a very, very big issue. Um, but I wanted the book to be something that people just read because it was an easy read. I didn't want to do a dissertation where people thought, oh, this is boring stuff. The title of the book, Clarice, Her Journey Through Life, and the author is Harriet Maxwell. Harriet, tell us how to get your book. <laughs> I think it's available through Amazon. Uh, I know Amazon.com and .co.uk. Um, 
I'm not very good at uh, marketing, so I don't know. I'm sure you can buy it anywhere, really. Right. Any You can ask for it at any bookstore. They can get it for you, or you can go online to any of the online retailers and, and get the book. Again, Clarice, her journey through life. Harriet, thanks for being with us on Author Talk. Oh, thank you, Steve. That was great. Thank you. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hey, moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamaminihats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. It's time to get your boots on with the Boot Campaign with hosts Megan Roth and Bailey Gray Thursdays at noon, 1 Central on Toginet.com. Sponsored by Austin Bank. The whole point of the boot campaign is to continue the true grassroots initiative developed by a group of patriotic women known as the Boot Girls. Inspired by the true story of Marcus Luttrell, the lone survivor, the Boot Girls got started with celebrities but want every American to get your boots on by purchasing a pair of the Give Back Combat Boots. The campaign's motto is simple. When they come back, we give back. For more on the boot campaign, go to the website, bootcampaign.com. The Boot Campaign Get Your Boots On Show will feature discussions on current events impacting the lives of active duty and retired military, interviews with our nation's war heroes, medical professionals, and celebrities who have put their boots on. Do your part and join us for The Boot Campaign Get Your Boots On Show with Megan Roth and Baby Gray, Thursdays at noon, 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Jesus, When Is He Coming? A Detailed Study of When Scripture Indicates Jesus is Coming, both in the rapture for the church and in his second coming. And the author is Robert Y. Jackson, and Bob joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Bob. How are you today? Well, I'm doing great. This is going to be a great discussion. A lot of, well, maybe a lot of controversy here as well, with some who may take exception to some of the things you are promoting. You wrote this about your book. My book entitled, Jesus, When Is He Coming?, is a detailed study of Scripture to show that, contrary to other books on the subject, we can know when Jesus is going to come again. And it goes one step further by revealing from Scripture when Jesus is going to come. This does not imply set a date for Jesus' return, but rather provide a detailed study of Scripture with, a, with an extensive, comprehensive discussion that any person 
of normal intelligence can follow and come to his or her own conclusion regarding when Jesus will come again. Well, that is the age-old question. When will he come? We know he will come. But the question is, when? Why did you get so focused on this, Bob? What was the motivation to write your book? Well, as the years have gone by, I have felt very strongly, and increasingly so, that that time is, is coming soon. And I don't mean with soon, I mean possibly within my lifetime. And my life is pretty well spent. <laughs> so the reason I wrote the book, in short, is I became concerned because of what most Christians believe about when he is going to come again. And that is they generally believe that nobody except God the Father knows when it's going to happen. And they believe that because that's the only teaching that most of them have ever heard. So I wrote my book because I believe that teaching is not scripturally correct. And I want at least to make available a credible alternative to that teaching and to show that scripture also says something else about who can know when Jesus is going to come again. So in short, that's that's why I wrote the book. Well, and it's real important from your uh, belief and your convictions for believers to know when Jesus is going to come again. Yes. Now, why is that so important? It's important because Scripture tells us that there's going to be a time of trouble for believers that Satan is going to initiate, and he is going to increase that time of trouble markedly as the time of the end draws near. And believers need to to know when that time is so they can prepare and be ready for it. In Hebrews, the 10th chapter of Hebrews, verses 23 and through 25, it says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as we see the day approaching. You see, it emphasizes that when we see the day approaching, we as believers need to redouble our efforts to walk faithfully and obedient before the Lord and not just look at ourselves, but do it as a corporate thing, looking at one another and do what we can to encourage others around us to take part in that same activity of drawing closer to the Lord. But we can only do that if we know when that day, the day of the Lord, is actually approaching. So it's important to know in more detail than has previously been discussed when that day is going to be. And, of course, Scripture says that no one except the Father knows when Jesus will come. Not even the Son knows, but you say that that's not totally correct because Jesus also said something else that uh, changed the whole thing. Well, Jesus himself said in Mark 13, 32, what most teachers that I have heard throughout my life 
base their, their belief on this. He was talking about his return, and he said, Of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son. He didn't know himself, but only the Father. Now, he said that shortly before he was crucified. And at that time, that was true of the situation regarding who knew when he was going to come again. However, when he was crucified and rose again, that changed the situation as to who knew. That is, who knew when he was going to come again. For after Jesus' resurrection, he said in Matthew 28:18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, when the Father gave all authority in heaven and earth to Jesus, that meant Jesus himself was then the one who had the authority over when he is going to come back to earth. He had all authority, so it had to include that. And since he now has that authority, it follows that he knows when it's going to happen. But did that change anything regarding whether or not we can know when he's going to come again? Yes, it changed everything. For in John 16, Jesus was talking about when the Holy Spirit would come. And in verse 15, he said, All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he, the Holy Spirit, will take of mine and declare it to you. And then in John 14, 26, Jesus also said, And when the Holy Spirit comes, he will teach you all things. So the Father gave everything to Jesus, and Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is making everything that he has available to us, which means the Father isn't keeping any secrets from his children. Well, Bob, all that sounds wonderful. Is there any other examples where believers can uh, build their faith upon which you, that which you just said? Yes, there is a very specific example. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul described what was going to happen or what is going to happen when Jesus comes for his church in what we call the rapture. And he ended that chapter by saying this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now that's the end of of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5 continues in that same vein of thought, talking about that day when the Lord will come, but it talks about when it's going to happen. And it's verse 1 of of chapter 5 says, But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, talking to Christians, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day, that is the day when Jesus will return, should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and the sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So this shows that when the Father gave Jesus all power in heaven and earth, not only 
did the Father tell Jesus when he was going to come again, but that Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, is sharing that same information with us who are believers. We're not in the dark anymore. We're sons of light. Let's talk about how your book is divided up into two parts. Why don't you uh, tell us what part one involve, is involved in, with, and then part two, describe part one and part two of your book. All right. Part one of my book deals with the prophetic aspect of Scripture that addresses when Jesus is going to come. And I know there are, there are certain passages that deal with that in the New Testament, but in order to make sense of those passages, you have to lay the groundwork in the Old Testament. So I began in the Old Testament. I guess it goes all the way back to when, when uh, Moses was leading the children of Israel out of, of Egypt, and God called them and changed the calendar for Israel from the calendar that existed prior to that time. And from that time on, there is a schedule. God has a firm schedule established for everything of any significance that he is going to do. And you can follow that schedule carefully through the Old Testament. The, one of the things that is, I guess, familiar to most people who are of any awareness at all about prophetic aspects of Jesus' coming is the 70th chapter or 70 weeks of Daniel. So that's a very, very important part of that schedule. And when you get into the New Testament, the 69th week begins and is interrupted and is going to pick up again at the end of the age. And the, the schedule will essentially be completed shortly after the coming of Jesus at the end of the age. It will be completed by Jesus' thousand-year reign on earth. But those are all aspects of Scripture that are, that are specifically addressed as prophecy. So that's all in, in part one, and I go through it detailed, listing the Scriptures and discussing them. Part two deals with the way God has chosen to reveal things by using examples. Throughout the Old Testament and also in the New Testament as well, he has engineered, I would say, the lives of people who he was dealing with in such a way that their lives presented an example of what he was going to do regarding Israel and the church in the latter days. So the second part of my book deals with specific examples of specific events in Old Testament and New Testament that portray as an example things that are going to happen at the end of the age. They, I think there are around 11 or 12 different examples. They are pretty much independent of each other. They are each one standalone, and each one of them gives the example, relates it to the event that is going to happen, and in many times it's related to a specific time when it's going to happen. So both parts are God's Word. They just deal with the subject in a little bit different ways, one directly according to prophecy, the other according to God's sovereignty over men's lives to arrange men's lives in such a way that they show as an example what he is going to do in that broader picture involving Israel and the church. 
We have a couple of minutes left, Bob. Now, I hear you say end of this age, that phrase. There's a lot of people fear the end of the world now. Are we talking about the same thing? There is really, according to Scripture, there is no such thing as the end of the world in the way that most people think of it, just a cataclysmic event that's going to bring everything to oblivion here on earth. When I speak of the end of the age, I am speaking of the end of the church age. When Christ comes back for his church, that will become the end of the age. And he will begin to deal with Israel then in a little different way. There will be another age, which is the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, which will immediately follow that. And follow that will be the judgment seat of Christ in heaven, and following that, uh, I don't really get into that in my book. Uh, maybe I need to write another book about that later. <laughs> but things are not going to just, just quit. Things are going to go on. Now, another phrase that really causes concern amongst Christians is great tribulation. Yes, that causes concern. And that is really the, the phrase that has fathered, I would say, the idea that the rapture is going to take place before that event happens, because people are afraid of that event and don't want to be a part of it. There is going to be a period of time, approximately three and a half years at the end of the age, when Satan is going to be cast down to the earth. And during that period of time, he, knowing that his time is short, is going to attack primarily God's people. And by that, I mean he is going to attack Israel, who are God's chosen people after the flesh, and he is going to attack the church, who are God's chosen people for his heavenly family. And during that three and a half years, he's going to do everything he can to make believers renounce their faith and turn away from their faith. And they are going to overcome him because they're not going to. And by virtue of that, Jesus will be able to come at the second coming and lock Satan up for a thousand years in, in the bottomless pit. The title of the Which, book? Go ahead. That's all right. Go ahead. The title of the book? Jesus, When Is He Coming? A detailed yes. study of when Scripture indicates Jesus is coming, both in the rapture for the church and in his second coming. And the author is Robert Y. Jackson. Bob, tell us how to get your book. Well... Right now, the way you can get my book is online. It is available through Author House, the publisher, and you can order that on www.authorhouse.com, and I have checked, and you can order one book or you can order a thousand. It is a self-published book. They don't have books sitting on a shelf. When somebody calls in an order, they print books and fill that order at that point in time. So there is no constraint right now as to how many books you can get, how few or how many. Well, thank you, Bob. Thanks for sharing with us. Jesus, when is he coming? Thank you so much for being on Author Talk. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Information is power, the power to change your life. 
So be here for Education to Excellence. Some of the most valuable information you may ever receive will be shared with you 7 p.m. Eastern every Tuesday night with Education to Excellence with your host, Bruce Beichman. You'll benefit from insightful shows featuring guests that are proven experts in their field. Little-known facts on how to improve your health by making one very simple change in your morning routine. If you're a high school graduate or working adult and a bachelor's, master's, or doctorate degree from an accredited college would change your life, you won't want to miss this. Education to excellence. Shift your career into high gear without ever attending a traditional college class. Learn investment strategies from proven experts who have a track record of helping normal individuals build abnormal wealth. Check out their website, education2excellence.com. Then join us for the show, Education to Excellence, with your host, Bruce Beichman. Tuesday nights at 7 Eastern, 4 Pacific on toginet.com. Fertility. It's an extremely personal subject. Tune in Monday nights at 9, 8 Central for the Fertility Forum with infertility psychotherapist and expert Phyllis Martin on toginet.com. This is the show about infertility, gaining support, and information. Phyllis will assist you in navigating the disappointments and decisions that often accompany the difficult journey from diagnosis to conception, pregnancy to parenthood. She is passionate about her work and is an expert in the donor egg field bringing both her personal and professional experience to all she does. Ms. Martin has extensive experience in helping patients cope with infertility, pregnancy loss, adoption, surrogacy, miscarriage, pregnancy termination, and creative family building. She knows what you're going through, and she's here to help. It's the Fertility Forum with your host, Phyllis Martin, Monday nights at 9, 8 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk. Brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Bethlehem's Brothers. And the author is Ronald Hera. And Ron joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Ron. Hello, Steve. Good to have you with us. Uh, I'm going to read a couple things you've written about your book, Bethlehem's Brothers. Uh, you say this. This is an intriguing novel, including adventure, suspense, and romance, set in the time of Jesus in the hills of Galilee and the city of Jerusalem. It includes Romans, zealots, fishermen, and even potters. The novel takes you from the slaughter of the children in Bethlehem to the road of Emmaus. The characters' reactions will surely resonate with you as they struggle with their faith. Well, this is a different approach. Why write this kind of book? One of the things that I have discovered through the years is there's a lot of people who, uh, who come to Christ in this day and age uh, who have their doubts and their wonders, and um, this is a way of maybe putting them back in that first century and realizing that the people that were there also struggled and and not everyone followed Jesus from place to place, so they didn't hear him all the time. So what they would do is they'd get bits and pieces of of what Christ is doing. And also, people came to Christ for different reasons, just like they do today. Uh, the zealots, for instance, were looking for someone who would fight and throw the Romans out, and yet others were looking for, for an honest-to-goodness spiritual Savior. And uh, so there was a lot of conflict going on at the time. So I thought that would make an interesting novel. 
So tell us about the brothers. Uh, let's talk about them. Okay, uh, the book begins with uh, the Romans coming in and killing the children in Bethlehem uh, for Herod the Great in his search to destroy the king of the Jews. And uh, he comes to this family. Um, the father and mother are there with their three boys. The youngest is little David, uh, and he's about two. And then there's Simeon, the next youngest, and he's about nine. And then there's uh, Enoch, who is about 12. And they invade the home, and uh, they, they kill poor little David. And then in the effort to protect David, then the father is also killed. And that leaves the mother, Esther, and Simeon and Enoch. And the two brothers are Simeon and Enoch. Um, they can't stay there because there's many widows in town and uh, everyone's mourning and it's, it's not good. They can't find good work. So Esther takes her two boys and says, we've got to leave. And uh, so she contacts uh, her husband's brother up in Galilee, and he'll take one boy, the oldest, Enoch, but he doesn't want to take both boys because he has boys too. So Esther and Enoch go up to Galilee only to find the uncle is a zealot. And uh, Simeon, on the other hand, goes to Jerusalem, and he meets a potter, and this potter is a, a former temple teacher, formal, former temple rabbi, and he, uh, and he has been thrown out of his job because he talks about the coming Messiah and talks about life after death, and the Sadducees, of course, don't like that. So they manage to get rid of him, and he becomes a potter. And so Simeon is raised by a potter who used to be a rabbi, and Enoch is raised by a fisherman who in reality is a zealot. And uh, the story takes those two boys on a journey through time, uh, only to bring them together at the end uh, after they have found Christ looking for him for two different reasons. Well, as you researched all of this, you must have learned some interesting facts. Yes, uh, one of the one of the things that was kind of interesting and actually doesn't even take place in Jerusalem or Galilee is uh, the Pharos Lighthouse in Alexandria. Uh, in the book, there's an adventure to Alexandria, and uh, that lighthouse and a lot of uh, interesting facts about the ships of the day uh, and the town of Alexandria. Uh, also, the uh, the zealots. Uh, actually, I was not aware that. A lot of the zealots who caused the Romans a lot of trouble actually came from Galilee, which kind of surprised me. Now, it took you quite a while to write this book. <laughs> yes. I, I started sort of messing around with the idea and uh, developing the ideas in my head and finally started putting things on paper. So I've actually been working on it for 10 years, but um, there will be two more books coming, um, Jerusalem's Brothers, which will pick up uh, beginning at the, uh, probably starting about the time that the apostles received the Holy Spirit there in Jerusalem, and we'll probably go through uh, the time of the actual fall of Jerusalem. And then the third one will go from 
and it'll use those same characters. Uh, some will die, of course, because time passes, uh, but we'll use some of those same characters then to go into a third book called Macedonian Brothers, and that will follow Paul and some of his his teachings and what the people had to had to do and to comprehend when they were in, say, some place like Ephesus or something like that. And Paul had talked to them, but he'd left. What, what do they do? You know, how do they struggle with this? So I think that will be an interesting book too. Well, and that's what makes your book so unique is that it puts you right in a time with real situations realistic for the times and gives you a hint of what's going on with the Roman Empire and the governors all over the areas affected. Oh, yes. And uh, and I have a little bit there about Pilate. And I have a, a character called Marcus, who is a Roman soldier. And Marcus is interesting because he's neither good nor bad. He has good thoughts. He has good ideas. And he, but he follows his orders like a Roman soldier would and does many bad things. So he's He's kind of an anomaly. He's he's different uh, than the rest of them. And, uh, yeah, we even get a Roman point of view. Well, and it also makes you think whether, you know, the reader would would have believed Christ was the Messiah if you'd been there and lived there and had to deal with uh, the reality of, of that dangerous situation. Yes, we all would like to think that we would, you know, just immediately, you know, comprehend what... Christ really was, but uh, it's not that clear. And uh, it takes miracles, it takes interaction of some sort with Christ and the disciples and the apostles. It's difficult to uh, sort out, and uh, some were successful and some were not. Of course, the Romans we know were ruthless and they were violent and ruled with an iron hand. And That's right. And That's it, right, and so did Herod the Great. And it gives us, a, 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 seems to give us a perspective that there was much more than defeating this enemy. Of course, the zealots, that's what they, they were looking to Christ to be that kind of a, a leader, a military leader. That's right. So how did they deal with that when he wasn't? It, it caused a lot of difficulty. And in fact, the second book, Jerusalem's Brothers, will cover a little bit more than what this book does, but... The uh, the zealots uh, and the Romans, of course, were always at odds with each other, and sometimes the zealots would win, but most of the time the Romans won, and the zealots got wiped out with their family and everything. Uh, so, But there was a, a, a Judas of Galilee who was a zealot, who was quite forceful in that time. Most people don't know anything about him, and uh, it'll be interesting to read about him in the second book. Tell us about Nathan. Nathan, it turns out to be one of the fishermen in Galilee that takes Enoch under his wings and, in fact, uh, later marries Enoch's mother. Uh, but Nathan is a, is a strong man who was mistaken for a zealot and uh, even suffered some whippings and that sort of thing. So he knows who zealots are and he knows who zealots aren't, and he manages to keep Enoch out of harm's way. Of course, we know much about the history and as we read the Bible, but you've even thrown in some romance. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, Simeon uh, falls in love with a, uh, a girl who is actually a daughter of a, an Asian woman and, and a Hebrew. And uh, so 
um, she is kind of uh, different, you know, like she's not like everyone else. And uh, she's wondering, you know, who, who is really going to love me? And, uh, and Enoch loves her, or I mean, excuse me, <laughs> Simeon loves her deeply. And um, so you see that courtship in the book. Now, you say that these brothers who, of course, are separated when they're younger, they come back together. Uh, they have to make a big decision, don't they, about who they're going to trust? That's right. Uh, uh, for instance, uh, uh, you know, Enoch makes a mistake, and he trusts his uncle, uh, who drags him into zealot uh, danger, and uh, yet at the same time, he also trusts and admires Nathan, uh, the other fisherman that has a crew of, of fishermen in a boat, and it's it's this trust of Nathan that probably saves Enoch's life. Now, one of the themes, you put it this way, sometimes we go through difficulties in life but are blessed in the end. Sometimes it's very difficult to see when you're in the middle of that. Yeah, Simeon is the one who experiences that more than anything else. He's uh, He's going along, his life is really, really good, and and uh, he develops a disease, and um, he becomes a leper. And he's one of the lepers that Jesus heals. And uh, in the end, he is, he, he is clearly a disciple of Christ. The title of the book, Bethlehem's Brothers, and the author is Ronald Hera. Ron, tell us how to get your book. Uh, you can get the book at Amazon.com, um, or you can get it at uh, uh, AuthorHouse.com, or you can get it at Barnes & Noble. And uh, uh, the book is Bethlehem's Brothers, and uh, my last name is spelled H-E-R-A, so it's Ronald Hera, and uh, I think you'll really like it. Well, thank you, Ron. Thanks for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you. 